0: Uh, We're in this uh, series in the book of Ruth and we've called it God behind the scenes because in the book of Ruth you've got uh, normal people in a a culture just like ours where it was just going from bad to worse and God doesn't seem to be doing much that's very obvious. There's not a whole lot of kind of miraculous spectacular things and so God is at work behind the scenes and uh, what we find in the book of Ruth is that the main character actually probably isn't Ruth, although she's really highlighted, it's really her mother-in-law, Naomi. And Naomi's on this journey from being utterly devastated uh, and being at a place in chapter one after her husband died, her two sons died, uh, one of the daughter-in-law, daughters-in-law had gone back and, and she was left with Ruth and she came back, Naomi and Ruth came back to Bethlehem from Moab where they'd been, and, and as they come back, Naomi just says, basically, God is God. She can't say God is good. All she can say is God is God. He's sovereign. He's in charge. He's taken me away, and he's brought me back empty. And so she sort of gives him credit for being in charge, but she doesn't seem to believe there's any hope of anything good. And really, as we go through the book of Ruth, there's this progression from God is God to God is good. And it's a journey that I think many of us have to make. Really, it's the, the journey of humanity from, from firstly, kind of, if there is a God, he's just a nasty sort of, you know, despot out there who does bad things, to coming to a place where you recognize now actually God has been pursuing me, like Carrie said, or God has been caring for me or providing for me or God's involved in real life and God is good. And so that's the journey that we're all on and for some of us that might feel like a kind of a desperate journey that it just doesn't seem like there's much good to be found and for others we're pretty convinced that God is good but there's still more to learn so as Naomi came back to Bethlehem, she was facing really two great problems. One was immediate, one was long-term. The immediate one was that she needed some way to survive. She needed food. And so that would be kind of first and foremost. When your stomach is empty and you're hungry, that's what you tend to think about. But then she had a longer term issue, and the longer term issue was probably the one she would lie awake thinking about at night that sense of what is the purpose of my life? Why am I here? In that culture at that time, we're talking uh, ooh, over a thousand years before Christ, uh, in that kind of world where she lived, the purpose of her life was defined as continue the family line, get married. Uh, get pregnant, have the child, and then raise the child. And she'd done it twice. She'd had two sons and she'd raised them and she'd seen them married and then they'd both died. And so now as a slightly older woman, she didn't have all the options that she would have had when she was younger. And so that sense of kind of overwhelming failure or shame was probably the thing that kept her awake at night, the thing that left her stomach knotted even if she had Food in it. Chapters 2 and 3 of the book of Ruth address those two issues. Last week we looked at chapter 2 and it begins in the home and it ends in the home and in the middle uh, Ruth is off collecting grain in the barley fields and uh, it's God's provision and God is at work and and it's a beautiful the way it puts it in chapter 2 verse 3 as she heads out to get food hoping to be able to, to find some leftovers and pick them up. It says in the, in the text there, literally, her chance chanced upon the field of Boaz. What a stroke of luck. She just happened to end up in the field of Boaz. And then you can see as you're reading it, oh, God is clearly at work. Boaz is this godly man who's related to Naomi's uh, dead husband. And oh, God must be at work here. And so Ruth got to see that firsthand, the generosity and the kindness of Boaz. And as she came home at the end of the day with her kind of two buckets full of barley and and all the the weight and the provision of that, I mean, it was weeks worth of food that, that she was given, plus the doggy bag with some leftovers from lunch. She brought that home to Naomi and Naomi saw with her own eyes that God is good. She'd gone from God is God and he's brought me back empty to, oh my goodness, may God bless the person who's been so kind to you today. And this abundant food was provided. And at the end of chapter two, there's a hint of what's to come in chapter three because at the end of chapter two, Ruth says about Boaz, he told me to uh, glean amongst the young men in his field. And Naomi says, that's a good idea. You glean amongst the young women in his field. She just turns it a little bit. She doesn't want uh, Ruth floating around in that field with young men who might find her somewhat attractive. And so it seems like Naomi's mind is starting to turn, and then we come to chapter three. And in chapter three, there seems to be the potential for addressing the longer-term issue, not just food, but what about descendants? Naomi, like many uh, ladies, is a bit of a matchmaker, And her mind is churning and she's starting to get a little bit proactive in her thinking. And in chapter three, she takes the initiative and she sends Ruth off with a plan. And the plan is to try and get Ruth and Boaz together in such a way that maybe, you know, the kind of music might start playing and there might be a future between them. Now, the thing about chapter three that is a bit challenging is this. The story of Ruth is this amazing story that goes from the time of, uh, right back in the the early days of the Bible, during the time of the judges when Ruth uh, took place, and it goes right past that to the time when King David uh, eventually uh, arrives. And so you've got this kind of bridging effect over many centuries. And so chapter four is going to give us that that grand master plan of how God has been at work and and in his own quiet way, he's worked through circumstances and through challenging times and through the the tough stuff to bring this Moabite woman, Ruth, and bring her back to Bethlehem so that she could marry Boaz so that uh, eventually King David would come. And then down the stream from David, eventually Jesus And so you've got this grand, huge plan, and it's all going to be kind of, uh, not spelled out, but it's going to be laid out for us in chapter four. But chapter three comes before chapter four, and chapter three just raises all sorts of issues. It's a gritty chapter. It's kind of real life kind of a chapter. It's a chapter that, that kind of makes us feel a little bit perplexed when we try to make sense of it, and especially when we try to figure out how to apply it. All scripture is God-breathed and is useful. doesn't mean we should all do what it says in Ruth chapter 3. So let's look at it and uh, get our uh, kind of discerning grids on and try and figure out what we can learn from this chapter. Starting at verse 1. Then Naomi, Ruth's mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, should I not seek rest for you that it may be well with you? All that you say, I will do. So she went down to the threshing floor and did just as her mother-in-law had commanded her. Let your eyes drop down to the end of the chapter, verse 16. This is back in the house again, just like chapter 2. There's kind of house, field, house. Now it's the same thing, house, field, house. So back in the house, verse 16. When Ruth came to Naomi, uh, her mother-in-law, she said, How did you fare, my daughter? Then she told her all that the man had done for her, saying, These six measures of barley he gave to me, for he said to me, You must not go back empty-handed to your mother-in-law. Naomi replied, Wait, my daughter, until you learn how the matter turns out, for the man will not rest, but will settle the matter today. So there's a plan, and the plan is put into action, and at the end of it, it seems like a positive, if slightly incomplete conclusion let's think through it notice how it starts and ends with rest i need to find rest for you my daughter and then at the end of the chapter boaz will not rest until the matter is settled there's a cohesion to this chapter now naomi seems to be very proactive for someone who two chapters ago seemed to be deeply depressed you can tell the difference can't you This is a a person whose mind is spinning, whose heart is churning, who's who's kind of being involved and engaged, and, and we could say, well, that's great, that's encouraging, it's certainly better than the end of chapter one, but is it the right thing? We have a tendency when we read the Bible to assume that everything everyone does is good unless their name is Jezebel or Judas. Right? basically everyone else we treat like they're heroes and they're all to be copied. I'm not sure that I want to recommend the Naomi plan. Okay? And Naomi here reminds me a little bit of some of the, uh, the wives in Genesis and husbands too, for that matter, the ones who kind of felt like we can help God along. Here's my maidservant. Why don't you have a child with her? And so Abraham had Ishmael. That wasn't particularly helpful. God had promised to sort the problem and they came up with a plan to kind of speed things along. And I suppose the danger is that when we're, when we're Naomi's in chapter one, when we're deeply discouraged and just everything's a black cloud, we tend to be completely passive. The danger is when we start to see God at work, then we can start getting a little bit excited, which is great, and we can start trying to help him out thinking that maybe uh, he needs us to do a little bit of, you know, preparation. And I'm not sure uh, that the answer is to never help, never get involved, never be engaged. I'm not saying that. But we do have to beware because we can very easily cross the line into stepping on God's toes a little bit and doing things as if he is not capable of handling it. God, through chance, in quotes, got Ruth to Boaz's field. Now Naomi seems to be growing impatient, and she wants Boaz to know that Ruth is available. And that what she comes up with as a plan, I think, is potentially disastrous. By God's grace, it works, but it was potentially disastrous. Basically, her plan was, uh, he's going to be in the field at night. It's uh, winnowing time, so you've got all the the barley harvested, but then you've got to separate the actual grains from the chaff, And so what they would do is they'd take all of that kind of harvested crop and they would go up onto a a rocky sort of uh, little mini hill, probably, on the edge of the field or or right there nearby and throw the stuff in the air and the breeze would push the chaff away and then the grain would fall, they'd sweep it up and and it would all be ready to go. So this is normal kind of procedure, but it's nighttime, maybe, I, I read, somebody suggests maybe that the nighttime kind of breeze is more predictable than the daytime gusts of wind. I don't know, that, that could be pure speculation, but it's nighttime. Maybe it's just that the time is of the essence, and they've been harvesting, and, and they've only got a few days. They've got to get it done before it starts to go bad, and so they work through the night. But part of that is that it creates a bit of, a, a bit of an environment, an environment that's reflected on I think in the book of Hosea, referencing prostitution and threshing floors. This is kind of the place where people got a little bit happy at night and things would get carried away. They certainly wouldn't want to leave their crops there and go to bed in their homes because then their crops would get carried away and that's not ideal. So they would sleep with the crops and kind of protect them and maybe do a little bit of winnowing and then eat and chat and hang out and drink and then eventually go to sleep. And Naomi says, Ruth, I want you to get yourself all spruced up. All right, I want you to to look your best. I want you to smell good. You need to put on some perfume and and put on a a, a nice... um, nice dress. There's nothing deliberately inappropriate here. This is just, it's almost like the, the, um, the plans for a wedding. It's like really make yourself look great. And then I want you to head down there and watch and see where Boaz is. And when he finishes eating and drinking, you look where he lies down and then you go to him. And you lay at his feet and you kind of put yourself in a very vulnerable situation and then do whatever he tells you. Now, that, that creates a little bit of discomfort for me and probably should for you. I remember when I, I did Hebrew, uh, took Hebrew at Bible school, and we were going through Ruth, and, uh, and the, the teacher said, um, what's going on here? And I, I knew it was coming because, you know, this is chapter three, and I was already uncomfortable. So I came up with a really good kind of churchy answer. And I explained all the symbolism and the significance of, of spreading your wings, which is what she says to him, spread your wings over me. And I kind of explained all this. And he listened patiently, uh, watched me kind of blush, I would imagine. And, and then he said, that, yep, yeah, that's all true. But hang on a minute. Forget all the right answers. What, what's going on here? I said, well, what do you mean? He said, well, it's a drunk man and a woman lying at his feet at night. What do you think is going on here? This, you know, I, I was trying to make it churchy, and he said the Hebrew here is not churchy. It's gritty. It's real. There's only one of a few things that are likely to happen here. Either uh, the obvious that tends to happen when you put an attractive younger woman with a drunk older man in a place that's secluded and dark right? That's the obvious. That could happen. Uh, That probably has some issues with it if that does happen. And we'll see that it doesn't, so don't panic. uh, Another thing is that he may reject her. He may say, whoa, back off, dear. You're being way too forward. Get away from me. What are you, some kind of woman of the night? And so Boaz could have rejected Ruth out of hand, which would have been a disaster. Or thirdly, he may respond appreciatively, of what's going on, which is what does happen. But I think the far more likely outcomes are the first two. Either that something happens that they'll regret, or that he sends her away with a flea in her ear for being so forward, and then the whole plan has come to nothing. Naomi is taking a massive risk, and I'm not sure it's wise. It may have been Uh, filled with faith. She may have been very prayerful. She may have been praying all through the night. I'm sure she was. But I I still think it wasn't particularly wise. And and we'll come back to that in a bit. But what actually happens? Let's read the middle of the story. Verse 7. When Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain then ruth came softly and uncovered his feet and lay down at midnight the man was startled and turned over and behold a woman lay at his feet exclamation mark that doesn't tend to happen does it he said who are you and she answered i am ruth your servant spread your wings over your servant for you are a redeemer we'll come back to that and he said May you be blessed by Yahweh, by the Lord, my daughter. You have made this last kindness greater than the first in that you have not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask. For all my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. And now it is true that I am a redeemer. Yet there is a redeemer nearer than I. Remain tonight and in the morning, if he will redeem you, good, let him do it. But if he is willing, not willing to redeem you, then as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. Lie down until the morning. So she lay at his feet until the morning, but arose before one could recognize another. And he said, let it not be known that the woman came to the threshing floor. I think he's talking to himself there. And he said, bring the garment you are wearing, like the overcoat, and and hold it out. So she held it, and he measured out six scoops of barley and put it on her. Then she went into the city. Okay, so Boaz is is lying there. He's uh, tired. It's been a long day. He's eaten. He's drunk. It even says his heart was merry. He is Mr. Vulnerable, right, at this point. She came, and she lay at his feet. Now, by uncovering his feet, uh, it's kind of a simple thing. When you uncover someone's feet, eventually they wake up. It doesn't work too well to sleep with your feet uncovered. I should know my feet are often uncovered because I kind of long. So, you know, uncovered feet. uh, Melanie's pulled the duvet. After a while, I'm like, oh, trying to get my feet covered again so that I can sleep. So Boaz's feet were uncovered. Maybe at midnight when the air got chilly, he kind of started reaching for his uh, duvet, and instead, there's a woman lying there. Now, it's, it's, I don't want to be kind of too graphic, but, but let's be realistic about this. She is potentially 20 years younger than him, and she is completely at his mercy. He is drunk, not necessarily out of control drunk, but he's been drinking, and it's the middle of the night, and it's that environment Let's be honest, it's very unlikely that something wouldn't happen under those circumstances. But it didn't. And that's the amazing thing about this chapter. For all of Naomi's taking things into her own hands and all the kind of question marks that raises, Ruth and Boaz are a pair of godly gems under the most challenging of circumstances. He understands what she's done by, uh, by kind of getting his attention and by asking him to spread his wings over her. The the word wings there is the same concept as the the train of the robe. It's sort of the the hem of the garment. It's the symbol sort of, sort of symbol of authority and power and protection. She's basically proposing. She's essentially saying, "I want you to marry me and take care of me and 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 provide for and protect." And he takes it as a request, because his response is, is to say, I will do what you've asked of me. Now that was really dangerous. Uh, my Hebrew teacher said it's kind of like putting two teenagers in a car in a car park at night when the, you know, one of them's drunk. It's kind of a dangerous situation, and yet these two come out of it with, with their integrity intact. It's almost as if Boaz uh, the older man is, is kind of aware of Ruth. He's impressed with Ruth, but he knows she's a widow. And so he, he's not even thinking about making any, you know, kind of advances romantically with her because, I mean, she's, she's younger, a whole load of reasons why. And she's come in and she said, you know, I'm available. And he's taken that as an extreme, generous, kind offer to him. He could certainly have sent her away. In that culture, even more than in this one, the woman making the move is not normal. That's kind of awkward. And yet he's accepted that move. He's accepted the initiative that's there. And he's treated it as a gift to himself. But there is a problem. The problem is that the system that she's referring to, you are a redeemer, is this idea that goes right back to the law that God provided not only for the the widows who needed food by telling them, don't don't use a vacuum cleaner in your fields, leave stuff for people to pick up, but also as well as that, uh, there's a provision in the law for if somebody dies, uh, the husband dies, that there's there's family members can step in and marry the widow and continue the family line. So she's protected and provided for and the family line goes on. God's thought this all through. And so she comes and she says to Boaz, you're a redeemer. And he says, I'm blessed uh, out of my socks here, but, um, but there's a nearer one. There's somebody who's a closer relative than me. And so I've got to give him the first option, but leave it with me, I'll take care of it. And then he keeps her there till the morning so that she's not vulnerable, kind of wandering around at night. Keeps her there and then before light sends her off with a load of barley for her mother-in-law. What, what do we make of this passage? What do we do with it practically? The Bible, I think, is clear. When it comes to a sexually immoral uh, type of risky situations, the Bible is clear. What should we do as far as sexual immorality is concerned? One word, flee, right? Flee. The Bible never says test yourselves in this. Put yourselves in a vulnerable situation, have a couple of glasses of wine and see how, see how your integrity holds up. It never says that. It says flee, get away. You, you cannot even begin to, to risk putting yourself in a vulnerable situation and hope to come out of it the other side with your integrity unscathed. It's not worth the risk. It's so powerful. Flee from it. Think of King David. He didn't flee. When the kings went out to war, he was back home in Jerusalem. And we're told that he looked out across his uh, kind of balcony from his palace and there was Bathsheba taking a, a, a bathing uh, in her back garden and, and he looked and he wanted and he lusted and he called and she came and, and she ended up in the line of Jesus, bizarrely. There's another one. Why does God show such grace? That's a question we should all ask, but praise God that he does. God shows such incredible grace to sinners. And that many of us in this room, all of us are sinners. But God shows grace. But David's not an example to follow. It's not a good idea to be wandering around your balcony, surfing the internet, seeing what your eyes can see. It's dangerous. We should be fleeing from it, like Joseph. Think of Joseph in Potiphar's house, Mrs. Potiphar, probably one of the most attractive and powerful women in Egypt. She would have been front cover of the tabloid magazines in Egypt. And she's coming on to him time after time after time, and he refuses. He's away from home, nobody will know. It's a perfect storm. But he says no, and in the end he has to leave his cloak in her hands in order to get away from the woman. But he fled, and he did the right thing. The Bible is consistent. We should flee from sexual immorality. So what do we do with this chapter? Do we say, here's an exception, here's a time when it's okay not to flee? You know, if you're proposing, it's okay to put yourself in a vulnerable situation? <laughs> of course not. I think of, of, of this a bit like um, some friends of mine. They weren't married. They were traveling cross-country in the States together, and they got caught in a snowstorm. I think this is an engaged couple, caught in a snowstorm. They got to the nearest town. There was a motel, one room left. What do you do? Well, they got on the phone. In fact, he got on the phone to her dad. And he said, excuse me, uh, sir, uh, here's the situation. What's the temperature? It's minus, you know, four million, whatever it was. It's very cold, okay, so you can't sleep in the car. There's no other rooms? I've already checked. No other motels? Nothing. Went through every possible option came to the bottom line, there is one room, that's the option. He said, okay, this is what I want you to do. Open the curtains, turn the lights on, go to bed in separate beds, fully clothed, and try to sleep. Yes, sir. And that's what they did. Not ideal, wouldn't have been their plan before their trip. Let's you know end up in a room together and be on opposite sides of the... You know, it wasn't like that, but it was, it was just the reality of the circumstance. There was nothing else they could do. So under those circumstances, they kept their integrity. I think that's a bit like what's going on here. Due to Naomi's input and suggestion, they've ended up in a very compromised situation. But Boaz is stuck. He can't send her away. He can't even escort her away because it's going to look bad for her integrity. Basically, stay here. First thing, I'm going to send you away and I'm going to give you some food because I care about you, but I'm protecting you here. This is very high integrity in a very low integrity culture. What do we make of it? I don't know. I suppose it's an opportunity as we go through the Bible to say, be careful, be careful. Hey guys, let's be careful. We're in a culture that's going to try and trip us up. We're in a, a, a sometimes a perfect storm of circumstances where doing exactly the wrong thing makes all the sense in the world. Be careful. Flee from sexual immorality. And trust that God is at work and that his plans are good. But I don't want this message to end on a kind of, you know, let's be careful That's not really, I don't think, the the big issue here. There's a bigger issue, and that is this. What about the positive? You've got Boaz and Ruth, two absolute gems in a very messy culture. Let's look at them and be inspired. More than that, let's look at them and see what they are reflecting in the way that they interact Firstly, Ruth. Ruth comes to this situation under pressure to look good on the outside. But Boaz says that she's a worthy woman, a woman of noble character. This culture will pressure. And pressure and pressure, ladies, to look good on the outside as if that's what you've got to offer. And that's a, certainly a blessing and, and you know, not criticizing that to a certain extent. But remember what the Bible says, that the real true beauty is one that grows as the years pass. It's from the inside out. It's the beauty of character. And that is a gift to all around. Allow, pray for God to develop the lives of noble character, that your character can be a gift to everyone you encounter. Men, what do we learn from Boaz? Well, Boaz brings to this situation, I think, real genuine love. Love that looks like this. Love that protects. He makes sure that, that she's safe. Love that provides. He gives to her what she needs. Love that praises. He just pours praise on Ruth. He says, you're a woman of noble character, a worthy woman. It's a phrase that would ring a bell if you've read through the Old Testament a few times. Proverbs 31, verse 10, a wife of noble character, who can find? And then it goes on for about 20 verses to extol the wonders of a a godly woman. And in the Hebrew Bible, guess what book comes next? Ruth. Ruth. A wife of noble character who can find uh, the poem and then an example story. Ruth's that woman. And so he praises her. Now I think we need to to recognize that the power of our words, gentlemen, the words that we speak can really have a significant effect on those around us. And there's two, two sides to that. First of all, let's be careful with praise that's inappropriate. Let's be careful not to be praising people in a way that's going to stir things within them that they don't know how to deal with. Let's kind of rein that in and be appropriate. That's, you can still affirm and encourage, but just be careful. Certain praise really doesn't help. I've kind of got a little set of guidelines for myself. One of the things I won't do is compliment women you know, from kind of 12 to sort of something uh, on the way they look. I'm not going to say, oh, you're looking lovely today, or I, I like your haircut, or anything like that, because I just think it's better to be safe. Now, there's another category of woman, and that's my wife. I'm going to praise her as much as I possibly can, if I'm wise. Now, typically, men kind of switch off all praise and don't say anything to anyone. If you're married, turn that back on, and please praise your wife. She needs that. Okay, so protecting, providing for, praising, and honoring that's what godly love looks like. He honors Ruth. He, he guards her integrity and he protects her reputation. And he makes sure that at the end of this, she's more godly than when, he, when the evening began. That's what it looks like to be a godly man. And when you take Boaz and you take Ruth, I suppose what we're seeing here is the beginnings, the potential beginnings of a wonderful marriage. And if that's the case, sneak preview it is. Okay, so if that's the case, then what do we have with every single marriage? We have a painting or a picture of how God is with his people, how God is with his bride. And so we're not doing any kind of funky, sort of clever jumps to get from Boaz to Jesus. It's just a beautiful picture of man and woman relating in a godly manner. And that picture, biblically, always should point us to Christ and the church, to God and his people. And isn't it wonderful? As we live in this messy world with all of the the gunk and the grime and all of the temptation and all of the struggle, we have... Someone who is even better than Boaz. We have Christ loving us, providing for us, protecting us, praising and honoring us, honoring us as in guarding our reputation, uh, making sure that we're never in a situation where it's impossible to do anything but sin. We have a, a groom who wants us to be beautiful as his bride, washing us with the water of the word, cherishing us and nourishing us, And so when we see it here with Ruth and Boaz or we see it in in godly couples, we're getting that little taste of the wonder of the gospel. That's what marriage is for. It's a painting of Christ and the church. And so every opportunity we get, not because it's kind of a burden or because it's a rule, but every opportunity we get, let's pray that God would, through us, paint that picture. The picture that Boaz and Ruth painted. A picture that stands down through three plus thousand years as a wonderful testimony to godliness in an ungodly society, in an ungodly culture. Whether we're married or single or engaged, whatever our circumstances, we will have opportunities to represent that kind of love. That kind of godliness. And the only way we can do it is to first... recipients. Like the Bible says, we love others. We love because we have first been loved. The way to live a godly life is not to kind of grit our teeth and clench our fists and strive never to make a mistake. It's to fix our eyes on Jesus, to be loved by him so that we can love others well. Let's take this uh, gritty chapter and let's chew on it. Let's pray about it. Let's learn from it. Let's allow it to mark our lives. And let's allow it to push our gaze onto Christ. Because that's ultimately where the whole story's going. It's going to be through Ruth and Boaz that they have a son whose son has a son called David. And David is the king who is then promised a greater son, a descendant, who is Jesus. And Jesus comes to rescue us from the grime and the dirt and the grit of our lives. And so what we're going to do as we kind of wrap up this message is we're going to take the communion, and, or at least we're going to think about it, and we're going to use this as an opportunity to reflect back to God our heart's response to his kindness to us in Jesus. It may be that uh, for some of us sitting here, Ruth 3 is really kind of cringy because we've put ourselves in silly situations and then we've fallen. Maybe for some of us, we feel that kind of overwhelming guilt about things that have happened in our lives. And the truth is that sexual immorality, while it is a, a real distortion of the gospel, it is not the unpardonable sin. God forgives God is gracious. And Jesus came to die to pay the price for all our sins, even those. And so for those of us who are here today with a kind of a lump in our throat, with a sense of, oh, if only I could replay that moment. If only I could live that moment again. Let's bring that to the cross. And as we take the bread and the juice, say, thank you, Lord, for the cross, for your blood that was shed, for your body that was given, for the sacrifice that's paid for my sin. And for those who are here who say, you know what, by God's grace, I I haven't got this track record that a lot of others have. Thank God for that. But even that is not without sin, is it? Every one of us, dirty and shamed, every one of us in need of God's grace. We're gonna have the bread and the juice just a, a minute or so of quiet. And if you're in the family of God, if you've trusted Christ as your savior, When you're ready, just take the bread, I'll pray, and then just have a minute of silence. Take a little bit of bread and remember what he's done for you. Take a a juice and and remember his blood that was poured out for you. And as we do that, let's let our eyes lift from our own guilt and from our own sin and from all the things that kind of come to mind with this kind of talk. And let's lift our eyes to the groom who is perfect, whose proposal was given to us on the cross, When he said, I love you this much, will you marry me? And so let's respond to Christ our groom. If you're not a member of the family, just just sit quietly. No one will even notice. Uh, We'd ask you not to take the bread and the juice, but think about what he's done. Think about the cross as a proposal and think about what your response would be to that kind of marriage proposal. Let me pray. Then we're just gonna take a, a minute or so of quiet And then the music team will be back and we'll we'll worship in response to him. Let's just pray. Father, we thank you that as we read through Ruth 3, the Bible doesn't kind of hide from us the, the, the sort of gritty realities of decisions that have been made. But we do thank you that even under the worst of temptations, you promise that there's always a way to stand up under that temptation. There's always a way of escape with integrity intact. And Lord, we thank you for Ruth and for Boaz and how their love and their commitment to you and to each other reflects your love for us. And Lord, I pray for us now as we think about the cross, that as we come to the cross, maybe with, with guilty hearts, with a real sense of, of the dirt that's in our own past. Lord, we thank you that your blood washes away every sin we thank you that your grace is enough to overflow over everything we've ever done or imagined doing and lord we just thank you for the privilege of being sat here as your people purified by your blood made clean and ready to be with you and so would you stir our hearts in worship Would you lift our eyes to Christ and this week in the circumstances of our life, would you, by your spirit, keep our gaze fixed on him, that our lives can honor you and that through that, as we look to you, you continue to work out your great purposes in this world and the way that we live our lives, painting a picture to those who watch. (coughs) Father, we thank you so much for the cross. And we just ask you to stir our hearts afresh now in Jesus' name. Amen.